Off the ball. The last battle in the Ronaldo-Messi war mm. was that World Cup and uh, Ronaldo lost it and then, then he ended up at like an Al Nasser. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. Right, very good morning to you. It is Wednesday. I'm going to check the date, the 7th of June. Uh, you're very welcome along to OTAM, and it's just gone half past seven. Uh, we've got a full house for you this morning. Shane Hannon is here. Shane. Good morning. Kathleen McLemie is here. Kathleen, how are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. We're all about the mergers today. We're talking about uh, Live Golf and the PGA Tour. I mean, who, who didn't see this coming? What? How could we not have suspected that the money would um, convince the money-grabbingest sport in the world to grab the money? I mean... Uh, more fool us for not really predicting that ultimately uh, the PGA Tour is getting what it wants which is loads of money and all the golfers are going to get more money <laughs> what what first convinced you to fall in love with these Saudi billionaires <laughs> I, I do wonder I, I didn't see it coming though I have to uh, say I, uh, it, 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 I thought it was coming I just didn't think it was coming quite so soon I thought it would be a bit more of a protracted process but it seems like Jay Monaghan just kind of took the reins and decided no not doing this anymore lads he's a man of action Jay Monaghan a, a titan of capitalism. I know I told you all before that I wasn't going to do this, but guess what? Got three of my buddies in a room, <clears> Amanda <throat> Stavely, it sounds the like PIF. They, they played a bit of golf in London and they had some nice meals in Venice. Sure they did. According to details in the Financial Times. I can only imagine the quality of the meals that they're having. Oh, can, like, Food I, I haven't even heard of. 20, I can't pronounce. 22 courses. Yeah, 100%. And you have to Portalans on a stick. Certain forks like in Titanic, that time in the, in the movie. But maybe uh, not all that satisfying as well. Sometimes I find those fancier meals, they're just a bit like... You can't have a burger afterwards. But yeah. That is true. That it's is true. Chips on the way home. Uh, it's disgusting and it's disgraceful and it's humiliating for the players that decided not to take is the it? carrot. Is it? It is, of course Why? it is. Why? Because they are left now with a gaping... They're left now with their own moral authority. No? No, that, that's true. But, I'm, but it's still... I, it's, I, 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 I hear everybody telling me, oh, he's been humiliated. Oh, Rory... He's been humiliated. Like Rory stood up for what he believed in, and like, and I think still has his credibility. He does. Is there's that not? And so is that not? Is that not better? There's a reason there was anger in that room yesterday after at that meeting at the Canadian Open. And I, I, sorry, I, I mean, I, again, I. But there is also the side as well that like he's come out and said like I've been given reassurances that this isn't going to happen, and like that is when you've like backed when you've been the public facing at the time when everyone else in the PGA didn't want to like stand up and be the public face of this he did and he was like I've been reassured that it's all fine I totally agree it's not humiliating what he did because he has his credibility and he has every moral authority in this situation but I could understand how you'd be standing there being like this is a bit embarrassing and you know, annoying. You, you know the Tucker Carlson figure in Succession who is like in every episode whenever they want to make him look like Tucker Carlson and uh, he's like, oh, I'm going to leak all this stuff and I'm going to embarrass you and Shiv is like, we don't get embarrassed. Mm-hmm. Like, Roy McIlroy should not be embarrassed by doing the right thing here. A lot of people are going to say, ha, 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 but like the people who are pointing fingers at Rory, it's, I'm sure he feels let down. I'm sure he feels betrayed. I'm sure he feels like... Somebody just broke up an engagement with him by text message. Now, you know, now he understands how other people might feel in other circumstances. But uh, he did the right thing. He stood up for what he believed in. He did. But but he was surrounded by golfers. 
That was I mean, his, his original sin here is being surrounded by golfers and the people in golf who are just interested in making as much money as they possibly can. Yeah, it's it's the whole language around this that that just gets me. Like when you when you listen to Jay Monaghan talking about the nine eleven links. 15 of the 19 hijackers being Saudi and all the rest and then you, he turns around and, and and says things like he said yesterday like the statement was just remarkable and I understand that Liv were struggling for sponsors and they couldn't get on American television but the PGA deciding to do this merger is just complete greed and money like there's nothing else involved here it's, it's as black and white no it's to grow the game Shane they're going to grow the game the game will be bigger because of this Shane I, I, mean, appla- I applaud PAF Governor Yasser Al-Rumayan for his vision and collaborative and forward-thinking approach. This is Jay Monaghan yesterday. Well, like. you, sorry, you do have to take your hats off to um, whoever in Saudi Arabia decided 10 years ago we're going to take over the world sport and then they just did it. They were like, okay, I mean, you know, their, their plan is working. It's an incredible show of power. Like when you think of the sort of bodies and the money that's going around that they're taking, like was it two billion they've spent on the live tour just to get players to come over, and now they're just all going back? And to what the- happens to the money? Like there must be some, there must have been some. Like, do the players still get this money? Like, was it do I don't you get know. like a two hundred million lump sum? I'm or dying to know is that. You get I am dying. Yeah, paid out over time. Exactly. You think you think it would be like we're going to give you five hundred million, but it's going to be fifty million every year for ten years. So you suspect that there's a break clause in the contract that if they rejoin the PGA Tour, you'll get a certain amount of that, but it'll be a lesser amount, or maybe maybe those contracts are just they they all get rolled in and all the golfers who went. And uh, and that's why they are laughing at McElroy. How do they I still think McElroy did the right thing? No, he, did, he definitely oh, no, he did, did the right did. thing. I don't think there's like any argument about that from this side of the room. Like, <laughs> how do these live players get reintegrated now? These are players that we were told they were never they would never play on the PGA Tour again, and now all of a sudden it's like, well, well. Well, when you look at how brazen they all were yesterday, whenever the news oh. broke, I don't think they're going to have any problems reintegrating themselves. In fact, I fully expect them to be walking around various different courses laughing at everyone. Jesus. Like, Just being like, that. thought you weren't going to see me again. Donald Trump on his uh, whatever social media platform he uses in his capital letters now. Great news from Live Golf. A big, beautiful and glamorous deal for the wonderful world of golf. Congrats to all. So, uh, of course, he has been critical of um, the PGA Tour in recent years. Had his... Um, Championship taken away from him wasn't in 2022 in New yeah, Jersey. Yeah, well, he'll get that back now. Yeah, it's, this is the thing. Like, it's Turnberry Youngs. They'll probably get the Open in the next few years now as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Doombeg is, is going to get one of those events. Uh, and it's, it's a lack of communication as well. Like Mackenzie Hughes tweeting yesterday, we found it through Twitter. This is a like, joke. Like, well, you can't be telling everybody about a deal that's going on. If it's like you, you, you can't blab. In fairness, I would say that's a, a strength of the organisation their ability to get the stuff done like is it a strength or is it the fact that it was like Monaghan and like two or three other PGA people like when you keep it that close did you tell them an hour or two before like finding out on Twitter isn't great uh, what, what, difference, their, what difference does it make it affects their jobs and livelihoods yeah they're going to get more money and they'll all be like they, they are going to get more money like I, I, I don't know you can't tell everybody everything I don't think you can bring like a, a 200 tour golfers and their entourages and their agents but I and their do managers. think I, okay yeah you can't bring everyone in on something but I do think there's a level of respect that you owe players that they at least get a heads up before the general public I don't think that's uh, too much for someone to expect Maybe. in that situation if it's a random email that drops and it's an absolute bombshell and you're like oh my god that's one thing but 
if you're finding out and you're seeing it just like rolling through Sky Sports or CNN or whatever news you're watching, I I don't think that's fair. I, I think that shows complete disrespect to the players, even more so than they were already showing. Sorry, and sorry, to say that the sports washing does not work, is anyone that out there with the argument now that the sports washing doesn't work? Like, the, I don't think anybody's making that a case, no, though, are they? But the, 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 fa- the fact that things in Saudi Arabia have actually got worse in the last year or two since since all this kicked off, since Liv kicked off, they're still chopping people's heads off with swords. Like, if anything, things have got worse in Saudi Arabia since all this started. There's an interesting like, comment in here on the YouTube from Keen Rowe, who's listening from Dubai. He says, over this side of the world, there's a palpable feeling they're ramping up their efforts and becoming a superpower. Their wealth is scary. It's just terrifying. Like, the, 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 the figures involved here. Like and we don't actually know the figures involved, but we just know that there are three billion is the figure quoted in the uh, in the FT today. But again, like we, you know, we do need the uh, sixty thousand word. This is what I pay my two euros a month to the Athletic for. Uh, finally, for the I don't know. I don't know if they've got anybody in the background who can um, deliver the inside story of exactly how the deal was done. Don't worry. There's going to be a lot of people wanting to take credit for this deal, who will be uh, letting details leach out in the coming days. Big Phil won't be able to shut his mouth. He's so. delighted. Uh, like Rory McIlroy, obviously, will, will, uh, I think he's due to speak later on today. Patrick Harrington um, had a few interesting comments on Twitter yesterday. Um, so, first of all, he was saying, surprised that this merger has happened so quickly, but not surprised it's happened. Definitely in the financial interest of both sides. Definitely in the financial interest of the players, even though some of those who gain will feel like they're losing. Good for the cohesion of global golf. Uh, and then the reaction started pouring into what Harrington was saying. And he went slightly further. People will have seen uh, this perhaps this morning. But looking at some of the replies, he said, I'm trying to explain why this has happened. It's hard to overcome the financial business side of life when you're representing a group with many different backgrounds and morals. My own country, he said, sells military technology to Saudi Arabia. So many other compromises. Yes, this is sports washing. And yes, unfortunately, approved sports washing works. But maybe one positive, inclusion and trade has shown to improve and change countries involved for the better. My own country speaking about Ireland, thought it was acceptable to lock up unmarried mothers as late as 1996. Um, which I thought was a strange comparison. I mean, when you're comparing one bad country to one other country's bad moves at a certain time, I think you're you're onto a loser. Are you? Uh, Why? Well, like, yeah. Could no, it not happen? Was well, it not true? Of course, we talk about the mother and baby homes all the time in this country, and rightly, rightly we should. Well, we don't. We don't talk about it. We... we, we uh, roll it into a ball and, and push it yeah, deep well, inside Catholic us. Guilt, yes, of course. And, and nothing, yeah. will, it'll never resurface again. And we, we betray them by not giving them enough. Uh, we have not made reparation for the the evil that we did as a, as a society. And he's yeah. just going like, look, this is a compli- complicated situation. I, I thought it was interesting that he brought it up. And I think it shows a level of reflection, which I wasn't sure was there. Well, it's probably something mm. that people have. And he points out that it is sports washing. And he did also say that he didn't negotiate. It I think that, like, I, you know, I, well, I just I thought it was kind of interesting because it was probably the most detailed response I saw by anyone in the yeah. golf world who was actually yeah. still a Ryder Cup captain, like still competitive on the seniors tour. You know, like you could almost see the like rise and dips in his own, where he was like, I I can see this side of it, I can he also see that about side, it it, and it was almost like he was speaking as he was thinking through it. I saw loads of people criticizing him. For and similarly, like oh, you can't bring up it's what about her? It's like okay, yeah, but all of life is what about her? Like they're like uh, de- describing something as what about her does not suddenly mean that you can't have a conversation about. Uh, obviously, there are massive differences in the global strength that Ireland has versus Saudi Arabia, and obviously, every situation is unique. But I think um, the criticism is coming because it's tough to compare horrible things like. 
you can't power rank horrific things that happen. You know, it, like, and I think that's what the sense that people were getting. American foreign policy has resulted essentially in the situation that we have in the Middle East at the moment. A million people were killed in Iraq on the most flimsy pretenses ever. A million people died in the war in Iraq. And as a result of that, we have the incredible instability that we have. Iraq has has not recovered and is unlikely to recover for multi-generations. And, uh, you know, like the whole notion that somehow America is this bastion of, uh, we should do business with them. Like uh, British security forces operated under a shoot-to-kill policy on our island. Mm-hmm. We don't care about that when it comes to doing business with UK companies. So, like, this, is, this isn't this is oh, they're, they're our current bogeyman, but actually, you know, in 10 years' time, we'll decide they're not the bogeyman and we'll move on to something else. Like, I, I, I do feel like there's a subtlety and a nuance to what Harrington is saying on Twitter about golf, which is maybe difficult to... Um, to I, I don't feel like I can criticise Park Harrington this morning because he's making points about, like, look, this is a really complicated situation. The deal was always going to happen because... Everybody wanted more money, and the more money is coming. Personally, I turned down the money. I'm like, good man, Porrick. That's, that's my takeaway from this. And I, I think that you can absolutely hold a mirror up to ourselves and go, well, how, how great are we? How great are we? Like with this misogynistic society which we've had, which we presided over, which we, handed, which we wrestled back, and then we handed straight over to the church in Fianna Fáil for like 80 years, and we're slowly chiseling it away. Like, that's what I think, you know? I know. No, we're, we're great lads here, aren't we? No, we're not it, great lads. It, like, and, and sorry, I should say, I'm not criticising Paul Carrington. I actually, like, his comments are thought provoking. It's just that, yeah, where does the, where does the line stop? You, you can't talk about, like, British security, British government colluded to blow up my hometown of Monaghan in 1974. Do you know? Like, the, the, but where, where does this stop? Like, where do you, do you then start talking about the, the open and Irish participation? Like, it, there's such a grey area, and and that's the scary thing about this as well. That the line between sport and and current affairs and news and politics has has narrowed to the point now where it's completely impossible to tell them apart. Like sports washing has worked, and it feels like on this show and on on, on off the ball in the evenings as well for the and last three or four years we we've been talking about but politics you don't think any more you, than sport. You, you don't think the college football game coming to Ireland is sports washing, do you? Or is it? Like. I, it, it's not, but like, is it? Yeah, that's the question. Like, and I don't think anyone thinks that like America are the world police and and, and are the bastions of of is, all that is good. Is the whole thing about sports washing though, and not like when you're trying to make the definition, the difference between like a state deciding that they're going to like buy up some of the most popular sports and the most popular sporting teams to like make themselves seem more palatable on a global scale, different to the acts of like individuals within sport I, I would say yeah and like it, that would be for me that would be the difference between like college teams coming over here I think that I, sorry just to finish I, I actually I totally agree with what you're saying I think that like it's been an absolute failure of like western media western policies over the last couple of years that we don't look at the America in the same way that we view like you look at what's happened to people who are fleeing like various different crises across South America, which are all propped up by American governments, like all that sort of stuff. I do think that, that everything that's going on with abortion, everything that's going on with rights for women, for LGBT people, like 
it's insane what's going on and I think we should be having more conversations about that and we should be having more conversations about like American companies investing in things but also again it's it's individuals and it's companies and to me that's different to like a state investment in and a targeted attempt to make yourself seem better on a global scale. I, I agree with you but I also think and and Jerry, your point as well about holding the mirror up. Like, like Qatar World, the Qatar World Cup, we, we talked about it on air from a footballing perspective. We engaged perhaps in sports washing, as did every other news and sports organisation in this country and in many other countries. Like, should we have done that? Like, I can't answer that question. Do you know? But Qatar is a state that have horrific human rights themselves and, and rights for, for women, and yet we engaged in talking about the sport. So I, I don't know where this ends. Like and I don't know I don't know what the right answer is. And that's the point, and that's probably why you're right about Patrick Harrington's bringing this up. That there is no, there is no right answer or wrong answer. Um, clearly, what's happening in Saudi Arabia is wrong, but I, I do understand your point that Patrick Harrington is probably holding up a mirror and just saying, "Well, look, <laughs> none of us are perfect." I think the point about the individual versus the state is, is well made. I would suggest, though, that like the sports washing started with the Olympics. And, you know, obviously, uh, famously, the Nazis in Berlin and then America versus the uh, USSR in their proxy on the Olympic fields where athletes were doped on both sides and blind eyes were turned and all that anybody wanted was the, the medal race. But I, I think that maybe the um, like, I know we're getting we're getting deep in the weeds here, but, I, yeah. I you know, the, the system of American capitalism is the American identity. And so I think it's not a massive leap to say that like uh, a, a company investment or the buying by rich Americans, the plutocrats who control the society essentially and who decides uh, who is fit to stand and who's going to get enough money to be able to run a, an election campaign. Like that's just their, the way they wield their power. The way the Saudi Arabians are wielding their power is they're taking money from the ground in the form of oil and they're hoarding the oil, controlling the value of it, and then making loads of money, and then buying assets with it, and and the world it has to decide whether or not it's going to stay uh, fascinated with and wedded to the oil that's coming from the ground, because that's giving the power to the people who are buying the football clubs and buying the golf tours and whatever comes next. Like you know, you've got to assume that the entertainment industry, um, the drinks industry. Uh, the travel industry, like, you know, it just... It, well, it's basically every industry going apart from anything that's based on something green. But the other thing as well, and I think sometimes with especially American clubs and teams, because there's maybe been a bit, a bit more of a backlash to it, especially in recent years, is that it's almost easier on an individual level to get angry about, like, wash a certain team or a certain club stands for or issues with, say, who their owners support, whether it's politically or what, like, religious or political ideals they support, whereas it's harder to go up against an entire state in that way as well if they have control over a team or if they have control over an entire league. I mean, you look at, say, the NFL and the difficulties there's even been there with some of the political stances and with the like the people that they're funding on a scale like but it it still seems slightly easier than going up against an entire state i i i know the point you're making and i do agree that it's not a massive leap but in my head there is still an individuality to those two things and maybe that's a case of needing cuz like sports washing is 
not a term that's been in our vocabulary for all that long, even though it probably should have been. It's like one of those many terms that we now have to describe phenomena that we think are new but actually aren't at all. So like maybe it is just a case of widening that definition. But for yeah, me, I, in my head at the moment, it, it still is a little different. Fair enough. I would say they're on a spectrum. Um, yeah. And like, again, if we had an hour, we could get into a bit more details. 7.49, though, we've got to talk about um, the the bombshell in Love Island. <laughs> That's a natural segue for what us, right? What a beautiful segue. <laughs> Sports washing to Love Island. Yeah. Well, it's all the big stories all the time. Yeah, yeah it's true. On OTBAM, the Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. So um, I would like to uh, open the kimono a bit here and explain. Shane asked a question in the pre-show meeting. So what, what is a bombshell, hey? Yeah. <laughs> what was your What was your question? What 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 is a bombshell? Like? No, it wasn't. There was a specific. There was something I've I've screwed it up here. It was that my what's question. The, what's the difference? Another question was what, what, what is it that makes what, a bombshell a yeah, bombshell? How, yeah. How do you Yeah. How do you become a bombshell? How, yeah. do, how, how does one if one wants to become a bombshell? Hey, well, we're getting to the truth of the question now. How does one become one? I like. I, I love that. I'd love to put that in my LinkedIn. Like, you know, <laughs> stick it on my CV. You're Shane too old now, aren't you? Missing for a couple of weeks. This is an ageist yeah. show, as far as I'm. Is there an age limit? Presumes so. uh, I think everyone tends to be younger than me, and I am 26. Okay, so oh. I'm slightly north of that. So maybe it's uh, Love Island days are, are behind me. Um, yeah, so a Love Island or a, a League of Ireland footballer, apparently on the fringes of um, maybe not one of the top teams. That's all the information that we're getting. Doesn't this happen in um, Ted Lasso? Does it? Right, uh, it does. Yeah. See, well, like they do get footballers quite a lot from like lower league. Um, leagues in England. There is one. It's there quite the common. Minute. Yeah, they're like the low, for like lower tier rugby players as well. Quite common. Yeah, Greg O'Shea was a course a rugby. He was in Love Island, wasn't he? Yeah, although to be fair, he was with the actual sevens team. Fair. So I probably yeah. shouldn't call him a lower tier because that would be unfair. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a bombshell. It's bombshell news for this bombshell heading to the villa. Uh, so apparently, a bomb, uh, the question was answered for me. By you, Kathleen. I think that the bombshell is someone who's lumped in in the middle of the show after a couple of people have come and gone to cause chaos and disruption and and uh, get with people. And I will also say I don't actually watch Love Island. It's just one of those things that you kind of hear in the grapevine. Yeah, you don't need to do that. If you watch it, you watch it. It's fine. It's, no, let oh, no, no, be no, no shaming no. here. No, no, because I actually well, it's a more serious point. But I I have my issues with the show and like the premises of it and the fact that it's always like a straight couples. The fact that they've had to like basically ban everyone that goes on it off social media because they're care policy for looking after contenders is so horrendous and so many people have suffered afterwards and also the fact that none of them actually really get any money for when they're in there and then okay, they come out enough. and they it's, it's, it's a PR move it's a moral stance fair here. enough fair enough moral okay, yeah. okay. But I do judge I do judge I do judge people who watch it well you shouldn't I mean, you know sorry uh, for anyone out there who watches because I know sometimes you have to switch off your your, your brain oh, I, I love reality TV like I'd watch it all day long it's probably my guilty Pleasure. Some of the smartest people I know watch the shittest TV. Are you call me smart, Shane. Yeah, well, you're a smart person, and my sister, my sister Laura, is a smart person as well, and she watches these sorts of crap shows. Joe Malloy was famously, or perhaps infamously, in in this office uh, on News Talk talking about his love of Love Island a couple of years ago. I don't know if he still watches it. I'll not speak on his behalf. 
But, so you uh, get to kind of shut your brain off for a little while and you don't true. have to think like and you're getting involved in someone else's it's like the whole thing of like the culture of people who used to watch like YouTube vlogs where you just watch someone go out their average day you don't just go for a walk without your phone maybe <laughs> well you used to be able to watch sport like that but now unfortunately you have to access the part of your brain that also is the political side of it yes <laughs> you watch Morals. the tennis like the, the tennis is festooned with um, Ukraine Belarusia Russia and Possible, Novak yeah. Djokovic it's like uh, yeah so we used to be an oasis not anymore 7.53 this morning if you want to get in touch with us we'd love to hear from you 087 is the WhatsApp number OTBAM live with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition is available now here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock uh, Tommy Walsh is standing by to talk hurling Dr Katie Liston and Connor Myler have produced a piece of work about the merger between the LGFA the Camogie Association and the GEA we're going to talk to them at half eight um we are going to get back to the live story with uh, Riet Al-Samari at around about 8.50. Vinnie Perth's going to join us in the studio at 10 past nine. And then some Gaelic football analysis from Colin Boyle and Darren O'Sullivan at half nine this morning. If um, you've got comments, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, was there anything else that we need? Oh, London Irish uh, at the moment and not coming back. Um, so th- this is the story. Uh, a couple of years ago, they were in Reading in the Medeski Stadium. They broke their contract to move back to the Brentford Stadium. Uh, which was kind of closer yeah, to their original fan base and they had built a best-in-class training ground but they didn't obviously have a stadium and then obviously the pandemic hit and when the pandemic hit they had to play matches behind closed doors even though they'd invested loads of money in players one specific contract is being held up as an example of the bad business they did but it seems to be blaming that one player who took a really good deal that was offered to him by London Irish um, and then they had debts of 30 million to the point where their owner was willing to give it away so long as you would take over the debt couldn't find anybody to take over uh, the 30 million debt and they've gone to the wall and that's the end of London Irish which is a storied rugby club multi-generations a haven for Irish people in London back in the 70s and 80s particularly Um, one of the first places that when the game went professional a lot of Irish players went over and played for and now it's just gone Mm. and that's it Mm. sad day for London Irish sad day for rugby Um, does feel like all the stories this morning are are depressing people just for another one to throw into the mix as well um, absolute mad night overnight in, in, in world snooker as well this was coming two Chinese players Liang Wenbo and Li Hang lifetime bans will never play the sport again uh, in a professional capacity and eight other players from China receiving bans ranging from 20 months to 5 years and 4 months this is <laughs> for cheating essentially manipulating games approaching players to cheat betting on snooker matches uh, and fixing matches and these aren't just small fish like Yan Bing Chao was the Masters champion a couple of years ago He's been banned until 2027. And then uh, Zhao Jintong, UK Championship winner, uh, recently enough, uh, will be suspended until 2024. So it's all positive, lads, isn't it, this morning? In terms of world sports. on the London Irish one as well, we will actually have one of the players on the show tomorrow to talk about his experience of being there. Uh, Hugh O'Sullivan, former played with Leinster, went over to Newcastle and then went to London Irish. So he's actually been at the cold face of all this (coughs) the last couple of weeks and understands what it was like to not know if you're going to get your wages paid or not. Um, so yeah, it should be a really interesting chat with him tomorrow. Quick run through the headlines for a minute before we get to uh, Tommy Walsh, the brilliant front cover on the Irish Examiner this morning. Forever soaring, GA heartbroken at sudden passing of Cork legend Teddy McCarthy. And it is the prototypical picture of Teddy McCarthy, both hands on the Gaelic football, high above uh, the Meath footballers. So that's probably one of the All-Ireland finals that they would have played in against, obviously, as famously we know now, the only man to... Um, Winner hurling and football All Ireland on the field of play 
in the same year. Uh, back page of the Star. Pep, City have big dreams. He says they need to win to become a big club. He says he's also has screwed up in uh, Champions League finals and big games in the Champions League before. So a bit of reflection from him. Kylie Home Sweet Home. He's delighted to be playing um, in the Gaelic rounds. Again, Tommy Walsh standing by. We'll talk to him in a moment. Greenpeace. Shock as Saudis swoop to end golf's civil war. Yeah. Will, um, will Sergio and Rory be teammates again in the Ryder Cup at some point? All those details have to be ironed out. Uh, and Declan Rice, we can join the Immortals at West Ham. That's basically a picture of Teddy hurling this time uh, against Galway. So I don't know if that's the 86 final, maybe. Uh, that's the 1990 final. Celtics rising star Vata committed to Ireland. Crawford, this is Jim Crawford telling us. Don't worry, don't worry. Uh, Rocco Vata, very good. Uh, Rudy Vata's son. Available to play for Scotland, Albania, Montenegro, and of course the Republic of Ireland. No, no, it's fine. He, he's definitely. Not to, he's, don't, don't worry about it. And that is, um, there's a picture of Jack Grealish on the top of the uh, Independent, and oh, look who that is, Declan, Declan Rice. Oh, yeah. Great. Oh, so, one of the headlines saying that David Moyes and Declan Rice can become legends of the game if they win tonight, and I was like. Europa Conference League, a tournament that did not yeah, exist a few years like, ago. I'm, like, I'm not doing a down in that. I think, you know, your team's at certain levels. Like, it's that this is making me sound like I'm doing myself down. But, like, it, it's good to get to a final. It's good to compete. But I don't know, was winning today going to make them a legend of the game? I think for West Ham to win a European trophy is a yeah, big maybe. deal. Moyes has never won a European trophy as well. Yeah. Um, it, it, does, it does transform how people talk about your, your career. We'll come back to this a little bit later on. Top pocket goal! Ahead of this summer's football in Australia. We... We're going to Australia. It's what dreams are made of. We'll be hosting a night of celebration for the Republic of Ireland women's national team in partnership with Sky. And it's coming your way on June 28th in the Mansion House in Dublin. What a moment for the Republic of Ireland. We'll be joined by the full squad. I don't know what we've just done. You know, I did believe we could do it. As well as some other great guests as we give the team a night to remember. Emma Bird is in tears. <laughs> I can't believe it. We've finally done it. Tune in to all of Off The Ball's channels for a chance to win tickets to this exclusive event. Sky, proud primary partners of the Republic of Ireland women's national team. Out believe together and we can go anywhere. They are going to the World Cup Finals! OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. Now, I'm excited about this. We get to preview the two finals, the uh, Munster and Leinster hurling finals with Tommy Walsh. Tommy, good morning to you. How are you? Yeah, good morning, lads. Before we get Seems into like the... like a, a great morning like, compared to these two provincials. Like, how many times, Ger, have we said, is this the best hurling year ever? And it <laughs> seems like we're saying that again. Like, what a Munster championship so far. I know that the Leinster championship, I suppose, hasn't... It's been probably in the shadows, but the Munster championship has been synonymous so far this year and... Go down to the Gaelic grounds now for kind of a home Munster final for Limerick to try and do the five in a row. Yeah, uh, in retrospect, I wonder will Clare think maybe we shouldn't have given the home field for the five in a row? Yeah, listen, I suppose there's many ways of looking at it, but in recent times, anyway, I suppose Clare have you know positive experiences. Well, positive experience, I suppose, in the Gaelic grounds, which was only a few weeks ago against Limerick, and there's not too many teams with positive experiences against Limerick. I was looking at the results since um, Brian Lowen came on board and if you go back to, he came on board in late 2019, 2020 they went to Turles, Limerick Hammer Clare 
22 then, they didn't play each other on 21. 22 then, they went to Ennis, it was a draw. 22, they went to Turles for the Munster final. Limerick have won. So, and this year in the Gaelic Crowns. So their only positive experiences really have been either in Ennis or in the Gaelic Crowns. So why not? And Brian Lohan is fearless. And the way a manager is or the leader of your pack is, usually the rest will follow. And they've followed him since probably, what, 93, 94, when things weren't going so well. Turned it around, they did in that Munster final in 1995 and went on and achieved legendary status. And he was probably, you know, the main leader of that team. There's many leaders on that team, but he was definitely one of them. And I'd say they would follow this lad to the ends of the earth. And if he says, let's go to the Gaelic Grounds and beat Limerick, and like they're going for history, um, I'd say they will just to, to take the hand and all off them. And I don't think whether they win or lose, I don't think this will really matter because they didn't win, didn't beat them in Turles either, didn't beat many or else. So why not try and go down? Like there's, is it John Conlon is closer to the Gaelic Crowns than he is to Ennis? Um, you know, so listen, I'd say go down, and take them on, and, and see where it goes. I think the other thing is that um, the ticket should be 50-50, so it's not, it's not a traditional home game. It's a home venue and the advantage of that home venue, but the other big advantage is that the supporters are always, like, you know, they, they're supposed to outnumber the uh, away supporters. In this case, that's not, that shouldn't be the case because it's a, you know, technically it's a, a Munster fixture as opposed to a Limerick fixture, so um, yeah. that dilutes the advantage a little bit. Yeah, it does. Um, I suppose, have Limerick kept a few tickets in the in the drawer inside <laughs> <and> some <laughs> office. You know, it's, you wouldn't find any fault in that either, really. You know, because so that's the whole crack of it. But, um, like I was down at the the, the, the game in the, the round robin, and that was, I suppose, a home fixture for Limerick. It didn't feel like it, regards to supporters. It felt like there was many clear supporters there as there was Limerick, because um, see, you can't be a derby chair in a farm players, confidence, everyone goes out the window for, for a derby. It's pure tension, pure pressure, pure nerves that you just, it's, it's like an All-Ireland final really. Every derby game you play in, it's the same intensity, same pressure, same, I suppose, bragging rights stat on the line here. And if you can, you know, hurl in a derby or hurl in an All-Ireland final, like you can hurl anywhere, and they're the players that we'll see step up, I suppose, on Sunday. Like it's usually the greats uh, step up, and like looking at Limerick, like we, we it's getting nearer and nearer now to these to these records that we we spoke of earlier on in the year. I was looking at the so we're in they're going for the five in a row. The only team other than Limerick to do this has been Cork. Three times they've done it: zero one to zero five, nineteen seventy five to seventy nine, nineteen eighty two to eighty six. All the great players, great managers have done this. No other team in Munster has done it. Uh, people who go back to the team of the 40s, um, the, the, the four-no All-Ireland winning team, they didn't even win the five months because the foot and mouth hit in 1941. And they, they beat, they beat um, Cork beat Limerick. And they were supposed to play Tipperary, they were supposed to play Tipperary, but Tipperary and Kenny weren't allowed in because of the foot and mouth. So they, they played Limerick to, to see who won and played Dublin in, in the All-Ireland final. They went on and won. This is with Jack Lynch and Christy Ring and the lads. They went on and won that All-Ireland final. But they came back then in, in October when the, the restrictions eased off. And Tipperary bet them in the Munster final. So, like, there's amazing, amazing history involved in this match Sunday that they might be talking about in 40, 50 years' time. Like, the, the All-Ireland winning, or the Munster winning managers, top of that list, 
Justin McCarthy with six. Like it's you know brilliant. Justin would have managed in our time, like with Watford and before that with Cork. After that, then to his birthday try has five and Babs Keaton. And then you're down to um, our man now, uh, John Kylie. He's down with four and can no O'Brien and Cork. Like so, if Kylie wins as manager this weekend, he goes up to five to join to join Bertie Try uh, and and Babs. Like it's amazing stuff. And I was interested to see then the players. So if, if, if the Limerick players go on and win five, you know, many of them will win five this weekend. The record is ten. And I was looking at them. John Dial, like you know, Hell's Kitchen, the great Tipperary team with the sixty. He is ten. Jimmy Barry Murphy is ten. These are legendary hurlers that speak of in dec- different eras, de- different decades. Down then you have nine, you have Christy Ring, Jimmy Dial, Charlie McCarthy, the great Charlie McCarthy, Gerald McCarthy, Ray Cummins, Johnny Crowley, and then three lads are on, on eight, Donny Neal and Tom Casham and Dermot Curtin. So like, if these lads win five, they're suddenly closer again to these amazing numbers. And, um, you know, and Claire are going to go down to that backyard and, and they're probably the best equipped team to take him on at this present time, Jar. The Clare team this year versus the team last year that got so close to them, it feels like everybody is available and playing well at the same time, which very rarely happens. And I'm sure there are some players who are slightly off at their absolute peak. But largely, it seems like we've arrived in a situation where, from Clare's perspective, this is as good a shot as they're ever going to have. It is because to be kind of the champions like this, you need good forwards. And this Clare team has good forwards. You have Shane O'Donnell, you have Rogers, you have, um, you know, sure, the great Tony Kelly, obviously, Peter Duggan. So, you know, Dave Fitzgerald, Mark Kyle Hayes, they have the forwards to take on this, this Limerick team. And we spoke about before the championship started, um, does anybody have, I suppose, the, the blueprint to take on this, this Limerick team? And in fairness to, to Watford in the first game, they probably showed how to get at him. And that was you had to go up and mark their defenders. You know, the Sean Finn, Dan Morrissey's, but especially the, the half-back line of Dierma Burns, Kyle Hayes and Declan Hannon. I suppose Barry Nash as well, where these guys that were as good on the ball as most guys' best forwards. And most teams up to now have been going with spare defenders or midfielders holding them back. There was Watford went up and took them on at the far end of the field. So they're definitely the best team that we have seen, best defenders we've seen to come out with the ball in transition and not lose it. And they went on, didn't give them the chance to do that. Nearly beat them, probably should have beat them in the first round. And then Clare took them on down the Gaelic grounds. And I watched, like, there was so many times in that game where Galan and, and Seamus Flanagan were in on their own uh, with 60 yards of space, two of them versus two Clare defenders. Many people would say that's a high risk, but was it not high risk going the other way, where everybody had been beaten by Limerick? So um, I think you're, you're right. I think this clear team in the form they're in and the players they have now is the best chance to beat Limerick. Tommy, would you expect Clare to adopt a similar enough game plan to that game uh, at the Gate Grounds the last time out, or is it adapt or die against this Limerick team? Yeah, you see, I think the biggest challenge, I think they'll go with the same, Shane, um, because... I think it's the only way to beat Limerick because you, you just can't let Burns. We've seen Burns in the last couple of games, man of the match, scoring three and four points from play. We've seen what Kyle Hayes has done in probably second halves of games where he was given that bit of freedom up. He goes up and down the line and he's clearing loads of ball. You have to go up beside him. So that when the ball breaks, it's a 50-50 and it's up to you 
to you know fight to win that ball like 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 most championship games are won like up to probably this Limerick team came on board where it was mostly possession. But I think to beat them, you have to go back. So I think they definitely will do that, Shane. The biggest challenge for them, though, is, as I said, Galan and Flanagan are inside. They're the two Limerick forwards that have never, their curve has never went down. They've been nearly on an upper curve since the league. Towards most of the other Limerick players probably have been, you know, searching for that bit of form and searching for that bit of confidence. Well, if the two of them are inside, it was, I'd say it was probably Rory Hayes was inside on Flanagan. But Flanagan played very well that day. He scored 2-1. But on Galan is probably the marquee guy. And Cleary was on him, Connor Cleary. And he went off with a, a bad shoulder injury, you know, in one of the last games. So it's going to be tough. I think they're going to be up against it. If, if Whether Cleary's playing or not, it's a physical game. And if he's a shoulder injury, it wasn't that long ago. I think they will find it tough if, either way. That's one of the things that's been utilised or, or used in the conversation about Limerick has been their strength and depth and how the bench has always helped them. But I suppose, Tommy, the Clare panel as well has caught up. Like you saw Aaron Shatter come off the bench and score a couple of crucial points in that last win against Limerick as well. So teams like Clare are catching up and, and certainly from the 50th, 55th minute on, you know that they have the players as well to, to change the game. Yeah, and Shatter... He's he's a huge addition in, in the form he's in because with say Sean Finn gone, like you, you have Mike Casey in there now, and you know he's a smaller. Well, Finn was wasn't too big either, but listen, he was just a genius of a corner back. Like as was a Jackie said, you go into Sean Finn's dungeon when you go into that corner, and there's not too many lads come out of it. But Mike Casey in there, Shannon went there and there in the last couple of minutes, the last day, and scored a couple of great points. He has that huge size advantage. He has that huge height advantage. So when the game is in the middle of the last probably 10 minutes, they will probably show Shannon in. And Ian Galvin is a super player as well to score. He scores a lot of goals. So like they'll probably put him in at some stage if he's not starting. Probably, he probably will start, but he's inside and he's a danger man too. So... Yeah, absolutely. I think Clare have the, the panel now to to go on and you know cause serious uh, troubles for for Limerick. Serious troubles, but maybe not win from the sounds of what you're saying. Yeah, no, I think I don't think so. Um, I think the Cleary one is what what changes it for me. Um, I just feel Limerick since the league. Like if you go back and remember their form in the league, like it was like Ray Keane, Keane and Turin versus Juventus. They were just in the flow, this magical flow. Uh, we've all had these games that don't often happen too many times in your career or over that long a period where no matter where you go, the ball just follows you, Jer. And you cannot explain it with tr- things you've done in training or fitness. It's just games happen where the ball follows you. You could be down in your hunkers looking up, wait, waiting for a break. Next minute the ball comes in, you just catch it. Or it could hit off your shin. Another day it went to the back of the net. This time it pops up into your hand. In this league, I felt Limerick, because if you go through individually their players, there weren't too many of them playing 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10, but the team as a group were just in the flow, where they were beating everybody really, really you know, easily, probably in the end, playing around with the ball. And since then, their players have been, I felt, just searching for form, where they had to work for it and wasn't really happening. Like You look at their great players of Keane Lynch, Garod, Hegarty, like just couldn't really get into the game. And um, but the last day against Cork, I just felt the turn the public corner. That was a Cork team. Like we've seen, they won three under twenty one All Ireland's now out of four years. Cork are on even out of Munster. 
they're still their their people are happy with how you know the direction the team and 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 the squad is going, and they played very well last game. But Limerick also they were able to beat him and start finding a bit of form. Hegarty start finding a bit of form. Keen Lynch, although he only came on, he's he won a few vital possessions in the last four or five minutes. And I think with them players come back into form with the history that's on the line with the the derby type nature of the game with what happened there a couple of weeks ago in the Gaelic Crowns, I just think there'll be no mad Al Pacino type speeches needed in the dressing room. I'd say you could just let them boys into it and on they'll go. So I think it'll be tight, but I just think Conor Cleary, that injury is what shades it for me. Um, the, the the physicality of this Limerick team as well, Tommy, there was some very interesting comments from, from John Kiley this week as well. He was saying the narrative around Limerick being a physical team is a load of nonsense. Uh, he was saying, how is that measured? What do you do? You're 80 pounds heavier a team. What is it like? I don't see any measurements that would stack up. He was kind of saying that there's this perception that maybe just because the Limerick team are, are taller than other teams, that that's, that's what it is. Do you think Limerick are physical, more physical and more of a physical presence than other teams? Yeah, no, well, um, say naturally, yes, but regards mentality, no, because they are absolutely, and they play on the edge or wherever the edge may be, I don't mind, but they go for every ball with very, you know, little fear of, of you know, if, if if someone's in the way, that's just what happens, like, you know, and I just think because they're champions, that's where the scrutiny is. Like I've said here and I've said before, the, 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 the teams coming up against Limerick, they're probably even more physical you know, more playing more on the edge, but nobody notices because, and no one picks out the instance where there's a late tackle or a late pull because no one ever does for the underdogs. And Limerick are the favourites; they're the champions. They're the team everyone wants to take down. So all the scrutiny is on when an incident happens when they're involved. But when Tipperary took them on, they were unbelievable physical and they unbelievably played on the edge. When Clare took them on down the Gaelic grounds, it was incredible. Uh, to watch the game, say not looking at television cameras. So if the if the shoe had to be an underfoot, we, we we'd be saying, you know, you know, you'd be, you'd be taking into consideration the other teams. Are, are they playing on the edge? Are they over physical? So I would agree a hundred percent with John Kylie. I see ninety nine percent of the time them Limerick players they go for that ball as if their lives depend on with the ball only. And hurling is such a fast game. Uh, uh, you know, a sidestep here or a mistimed tackle here, it looks it looks terrible. But there's so many cameras at games, uh, Shane. Like, you know, uh, it's as unbelievable. You pick up every mistake and that's the way hurling is. Like, a shoulder to shoulder. People want the shoulder to shoulder. That, in my view, that can't happen anymore because you miss time in one second, you're gone. It's, a, it's, it's, you know, a shoulder into the chest or the head or some way sign. And then players are going down now because, like, at one stage of forward, right, a back comes in and is, is being physical on him, Shane. Uh, he's never pulled on that really. You know, pulling the jersey or dragging him down to the ground or giving him a, maybe, you know, a, a little dig. Not to hurt him, rat and like that, but just... And a forward one time could defend himself, you know, give it back to the to, to the defender. But now if he does that, he'll some camera will pick him up or a linesman or an umpire will get a red card. So that's why you're now seeing forwards going down that bit more. Because they've no other choice, and they're going down to draw attention to the uh, to, to the to, from the referee to the incident. But no, I agree 100 percent with John Kiley. But they definitely have a huge size advantage. Like sure, there's four or five and six foot five, and there's probably ten or eleven and more for six foot one. You know? Yeah, that helps. Like, uh, to give you one, huh? that helps. <laughs> that helps. Like I, I didn't mark Wally Welsh too many times. Walter from Kenny, 
But say a couple of times in Martin in training, like the only way to get the ball off Walter was to get the ball before he does. I heard Paul Murphy even referencing it during the week with the great players, Joe Haddock, Steve Reeds. But with Walter Welch, if you didn't get the ball first, like you're in trouble because Walter is six foot five and he's just either fling you out of the way or go around you or he in many different ways. And Limerick have four or five of them at Walter Welch, you know, so they have a huge advantage with their natural size. You look like you're in the Limerick panel yourself, Tommy, this morning with that jacket. Uh, that's me. <laughs> Go to Adidas jacket. Have it about 10 years of this time, retro. <laughs> uh, the last thing about this, right, so the, the game finished um, a draw in normal time and, and Limerick won it last year and it seemed to take a fair bit out of Clare because we didn't see them do justice to themselves. Obviously, they, they beat Wexford the next day out and then they didn't do justice to themselves against Kilkenny in the Ireland semi-final. It was a brilliant performance by Kilkenny, so it's hard to know what exactly happened. But it felt a little bit like Limerick broke their soul in the game last year. How do how do the losers of this game make sure that they're still contenders in the All-Ireland series and that they don't suffer the same fate? Is there any way of preparing for that or preventing it? I don't think so. Um, you know, like an, even on the greater, wider scale, Ger, like there's a lot of commentary around Leinster have it you know, the advantage going into the All-Ireland series that they're fresh going into it. But let's go back to the to 2000 and, uh, was it 18, 19, when the round robin started. Munster teams, their Munster finalists, in most cases, have won the All-Ireland final. Whether that was Limerick, whether that was Tipperary and you know, 19. Like, so the Munster champions, Munster finalists, and I think once was in 2018 when Limerick were, they only came third place. But the Munster team has won the All-Ireland final every year since the, this round robin. So it doesn't stack up. But I hear what you're saying. You, you, your most recent memory is last year. And that's how badly, I suppose, uh, Clare performed after such a thrilling Munster final. But I've, I've always said the hardest game that you've played is after you play out of your skin and lose or even play out your skin and draw. And they played, you know, some of the best hurling that was ever played in Munster Championship in the Munster final last year. Like, they scored a sideline to draw the game from inside the 21. Like, there was magical stuff going on in, 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 in Turles last... Was it, a, it was a sudden... Was it last year, anyway? It was, it was in Turles, it was at the game, but it was a magical, magical day to be part of. So they had all these guys, Jared, clapping them on the back, telling them they're great lads, but they lost. And like winning trophies is where you like you can talk about performing till the, till the cows come home. It's all about winning trophies, and it is uh, for that ultimate satisfaction. Because yes, I played well, but we lost. Right, you feel halfway good that you performed and you didn't leave your farm in the dressing room. You played with great heart, but the true satisfaction comes when you go home as champions. And like. You know, uh, Clare, like this Clare team, they haven't felt that way probably in a long time. Now, I think the minor win last weekend will give the county a lot of hope and even take a bit of pressure off this team this weekend because it means the future is bright. But this team won the All-Ireland in 2013. The one was at four under-21 All-Irelands. It was a three in a row. And it felt like they were going to go on and dominate the landscape. But they didn't even, you know, get back to Crow Park for huge you know a large number of years and they, they, they haven't won a Munster Championship and for Clare I, I feel the Munster Championship means so much because you know they've won so few of them like when they won the All-Ireland in 
player, especially Shawnee McMahon, is one I really remember. He felt the ninety the, the Munster Championship victory was what meant most, and probably was, uh, you know, is the one he really dreamt of all his life. Probably never dreamt of winning All Ireland. So these clear players, young players, they grow up dreaming of winning Munsters, and they haven't won one yet. So I think it's it is really important for for them. For Clare especially, I think Limerick will recover no problem, but I think for Clare especially, I think it's a big one to win. OK, let's talk a bit about uh, going, Kilkenny, before we wrap up here. Um, Kilkenny's injury problems, Adrian Mullen, I think, it'll be, I read somewhere, it'll be a miracle for him to make it back in time. Um, his his thumb injury, it looks like Mossy Keoghan and Mikey Butler might be gone as well. Uh, are those injuries enough to swing the pendulum slightly back in Galway's favour? I think we might have lost you there, Tommy, did we? Yeah, we'll get, the, we'll get that line back to Tommy. We'll just do another couple of minutes here. OTBIM, live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. Um, so Limerick, slight favourites for the game against Clare. Uh, Galway and Kilkenny, very difficult to know where the two sides are. Mm. Had a draw. Um, I'm just trying to remember. Was that? I was going to say it was Nolan Park, but that might not have been actually. Um, where Galway needed a big... Uh, a big comeback to get into it and Galway also needed a big comeback to get into the game against Dublin but when they were coming back <coughs> they looked brilliant in both games Yeah, when they were down they were like the real Jekyll and Hyde stuff from Galway in um, the errors against Dublin were remarkable from, from Galway like yeah 12 points down to come back is, is pretty impressive but handing points to, to the Dubs the last day um, certainly from, from watching that game um, inside forwards getting a lot of space but it's it's hard to know what to read into those previous games, especially the Kenny, the Kenny game against Wexford. Bit of a shootout, bit of chaos as well. Um, certainly the injuries will play some sort of role. Adrian Mullen being out is a big one. Uh, big loss for Kenny, but that's a fascinating match. Uh, and it's the second game as well. It's kind of the Munster final usually would be the second game, would it? So it's at 1.45 and then 4 o'clock for the, for the other one in Croker. So uh, the appetite will at least be whetted. Across the afternoon, Claire, everybody as physical as Limerick says James Coughlin or Colin, depending on what part of the country you're in. Uh, Colin McCarthy says any close game recently has been Claire at 95 percent against Limerick at 75 percent. Both teams hit peak performance. Limerick win, but if both teams hit peak performance, you know when have we seen Limerick on, in their peak performance recently? It's been a while. Uh, Finn is class, but Limerick have the players to replace him. Claire don't have anyone without destroying our half back line by taking Davy Mack out of wing back. And then uh, a couple of people pointing out that Tommy subtly nailing his colours to the mast. Hashtag Limnickaboo. Tommy wearing his Limerick colours says David Valley and uh, Colin McCarthy in this morning. So uh, Even when you are perfect, it's tough to beat Limerick. It was not Sarah Donovan was on with us after the, the Cork-Limerick match and she was saying like Le Cork hit 11 shots in the first 20 minutes of that match, scored 11 points. The score scoring accuracy was ridiculous and yet still lost the game by a point. So you can be near perfect against Limerick and still lose. Yeah, and like we, they're an all-time great team, so that, that is the crack. Um, that's what you need to do um, if you're going to see it through. Like you are going to have to beat one of the all-time great teams. We have up on the phone? Yeah, okay. No, two more minutes. It's... It is. It is a, a, a like when you look at Clare not having won a Munster since '98. Though, like, it, there's more on the line for them. As as Tommy said, there. As long as you're in the Munster final, you have been in a contender for the All Ireland in previous years. Um, so Clare will just want to win one of those Munster titles. Like th- this, this Clare squad have to, at some point. Like winning the All Ireland is great in 2013, but this Clare squad. I mean, build, it's a bit building blocks, um, and the job they've done in recent years. They've been probably the closest team. 
traditionally and, and most consistently with, with Limerick as well. We've got Tommy back on the phone. Tommy, we were talking about um, the injuries that Kilkenny have suffered, maybe swinging the pendulum back to Galway. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I fully agree with that, Jared. 100% on the money. Like, um, I, great hopes for this Kilkenny team. Like, I just felt they had the forwards. They were putting up huge, big scores. Um, even go back to the, to the Wexford game when they lost the three lads, they still scored five goals. But they're now missing Adrian Mullen, who for me is probably the number one Kilkenny player for the last year or two. Um, like, watch him last year for Club and County. He was nine out of ten in most games. He was just physically he's at his peak Harlan like there's so many of the Mullins brothers he's a younger brother he's only about 15 he's unbelievable as well Jake Mullen but it's just in their genes and he's gone like it looks like season ending injury with his hand then Mossy Keown and Mikey Butler like Mossy was one of the farm county hurlers for Kenny for, for, for the last couple of weeks he's been outstanding since the, the Leinster round robin began Mikey Butler like he marked Tony Kelly in last year's All-Ireland semi-final he was brilliant in the All-Ireland final like he kept Sean Finn out of you know Sean Finn in brilliant form was kept out of the, the cornerback in the All-Star team only because of the sheer excellence of Mikey and even against Galway last year, I'm nearly sure he took up Cottle Mannion. So, like, if definitely Mullen is out, but if the two lads are out as well, it's just a serious dent. Is you know, three out of fifteen, like a fifth of the team, and they're three of their best players in the form of their lives. So, I definitely think it swings in Galway's favour. But this Kilkenny team, like, they're they're going for four in a row themselves. Um, like for Galway, like in all their dominance under his level, year. Um, like even since the the, the, the Kenny the, the great Kenny team that was all conquering, they finished around say zero fourteen. Most of them were gone, so they've only won three Leinster since two thousand and nine. You know we talk about all Ireland, but they, they've won this team Galway. They've only won three Leinster, so they're not easy to win. The one zero twelve uh, seventeen and eighteen then with Mialo Donoghue. So it is time that they, that they, they won a, another Leinster championship because they have the players. Um, who's in the farm for them at the moment? Say Dahi Burke seems to be, you know, really after growing into that centre back role, um, which just showed me that goal he scored uh, against Dublin the last year. He just wandered up the field like he does, I suppose, with the footballers. But I see him against Wexford around here. He's doing that kind of the whole time, so he needs to be tracked. And up front, sure, Concon and Nyland, they're the new guys. So it'll probably depend on the farm of Conor Cooney and Conor Whelan. You know, Joseph Cooney has been the one probably of the older brigade has been really stepping up in the last couple of games. He's probably kept him in him the last day against Dublin. So I think it'll depend on the, the form of their players that are there probably, you know, seven or eight or nine years. I think the young fellas will, will perform. Have you seen a team be as inconsistent as Galway at, at some stage in the season put it all together and, and go on a run? I suppose what I'm wondering here, is it possible that they can get that, whatever that kink is, out of their system yeah well a match is played over 70 minutes so I presume the inconsistency you speak of is during games um, against Kilkenny I suppose in all the part they went down by so much but still came back so I would say from a Galway point of view this Galway team is probably doing what other Galway teams haven't been able to do and that is keep stay in the game every game until, until probably the last couple of minutes like one time when you're playing Galway one day you go out and it could beat you by five or ten points. Another day, if you were beating them by five points, you'd end up beating them by ten points. So it's this Galway team, and I had a communion or a, a christening for the, the, the last round of games uh, that Sunday. So I was watching the two 
the games on, on television. But that, that, that when Dublin went, I'd say it was 10 points ahead. I just said to a couple of lads in the sitting room, I said, watch this. Centenary took over this Galway team. They don't give up. They're always still there. And that's not just an attitude on the day. That's through sheer hard work for the previous six or eight months that gives you the confidence to perform and the fitness levels to perform for 70 full minutes. And with that, they went 12 points up Dublin early in the second half. And I said to the lads, I guarantee you'll be only a puck of a ball in at the end. And lo and behold, we've seen what happened. They came back and drew the game, probably should have won it. So I think it is in this Galway team to stay in games. And that's what gives them a chance, uh, Jerry. Yes, inconsistent during the game. But over the course of 70 minutes, they have been probably very consistent, like, you know, and even if you go back to last year's all Ireland semi-final, like, there was times in that Limerick game where it looked like they were going to shoot on and beat be 10 points. But no, they pulled them back and pulled them back and there was only a puck of the ball in it at the end. So, Galway, slight favourite for you then? Yeah, just with the injuries, absolutely, a uh, puck Galway, a slight favourite. All right, Tommy, good stuff. Enjoy the games this weekend. Thanks. Thanks, lads. That's uh, Tommy Walsh giving us some thoughts on the Leinster and Munster Hurling Championships. It is 8.33. You're watching OTBAM. We're live every morning with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Light Edition is available now. Um, now, we're turning our attention to the other big merger in world sport after uh, Liv and the PGA Tour. And that's the uh, putative merger between the GEA, the LGFA and the Camogie Association. And I'm delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Katie Liston and Conor Myler to the show. Katie Liston is a senior lecturer at Ulster University. And of course, Conor Myler, apart from being a decent footballer, is also a PhD researcher in sport, leadership and gender. You're both very welcome to the show. Katie, I might start with you. Um, you guys decided to do this as a piece of work while the merger was happening. So can you talk to us a little bit about how the idea came to pass and what was involved in it? Sure, Ger. Good morning. Thank, thanks for having us. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is we're careful not to use the word merger. And, and you'll see why in a few minutes. But the reason why we started this work is because we realized, having looked at the research, that we know very little about what would be, uh, I suppose, a good model and a useful pathway for a multi-entity, multi-sport merger, the term that you used. Now, we know that in the unanimous passing of the motion, the word integration was used. So I think that's a more open, inclusive approach, and it potentially offers a number of options going down the line, one of which our recommendation might be that we would consider actually building a new organization for Gaelic Games rather than a merger as such. So essentially, this came out of the recognition that we don't have a theoretically informed and an evidence-based pathway. And we hope that in putting this into the public domain in a very constructive spirit, that it will be available to all those in the Gaelic Games family to be able to grapple with the issues at stake. Okay, so it, this isn't a piece of work that has been commissioned by the GEA. It's not officially a piece of work by any of the three organisations. It's off your own uh, creativity and, and uh, off your own bat, really. It is, and I, I'll maybe hand you over to Connor because Connor's now undertaking doctoral research, as you've identified, and his research will actually look at the theme of gender equality in sport. Connor, good morning to you. Morning, Jer. Uh, thanks for having us. So, as Katie alluded to, yeah, this is part of my PhD project, which through TUS and support of, of Aoife, Dr. Aoife Lane as my supervisor and with Katie here from Ulster University. So, um, it's part of a, a wider project. And as Katie alluded to, it was probably too good of an opportunity to, to turn down when we seen 
that there was no research on it. Um, and then the wider sphere of gender equality in sport and leadership, which is what I was initially studying. Um, this made sense to, to delve into. Well, it's a, in the live environment, a massive thing is happening in Irish sporting history that kind of uh, grapples with all of the questions that you are studying at the moment. So uh, good timing. It is good timing, without a doubt. And I think that we have an opportunity here to do something historical. We have three associations which have such strong traditions in in Irish sport and society that we have an opportunity now to sort of, you know, come forward and say, look, how we treat women in sport and particularly in, in Gaelic Games and the representation, the female representation, what we could do here now with Gaelic Games family is is something that's you know, not just for 10 years time, 50 years time, 100 years time, the impact it could have, uh, you know, for the future of the sport is huge. And also how we acknowledge females in Irish society, the impact it could have there and the ripple effect post-merger, uh, post-integration is is huge. You obviously felt, Connor, that there were issues that needed to be addressed, that needed to be diagnosed uh, before they can be fixed, is is that what drew you to this field of study in the first place? Well, look, I'll be totally honest, Jer. I probably didn't see myself initially going into this research, and once I was probably made a wee bit more aware of some of the issues that were going on and the disparity between the men's association and the two female associations, I probably felt somebody had to speak up and say something and do something about it. And I'm probably coming at it from a different angle as a male inter-county player. Um, I have been very fortunate throughout my career that I haven't had a lot of the issues that some of the females have faced in the, you know, through the camogie and the ladies football with access and facilities and, and funding and, and everything else that comes with it. I haven't faced that, and to be honest, I probably will never fully understand some of the, you know, the issues that that some of these uh, ladies have faced, and that's that's now probably given me a sense of purpose to actually go and do something worthwhile and say, yeah, you know, I can do something about this here, and you know, as a male, I do think that we have to be able to, you know, stand up and speak out about it. Um, you're coming at it from a, from a different angle as such and you're that sort of advocate in favour uh, in support as well. Yeah. I guess, Katie, a, a merger or integration of this size and scale in this country is, is unprecedented, but you did use a, a case study of the uh, the formation of Golf Ireland, which, interestingly as well, came from a, a new, two single-sex organisations. So that was obviously utilised to your, to your advantage as well to see how it can work. It was. So what, what we did is that the first stage, and we spent about four or five months on this, so it's really great to be able to get it into the public domain now. We first of all scanned all of the available research on mergers and integration, both in corporate, business and public sectors. And in the public sector, that's where most of national governing bodies sit. They're actually quasi-public sector bodies when you, when you look at their structure and status. We also then recognise that there are distinctive elements in the Irish context uh, and particularly the history heritage of the three associations, the extent to which they're deeply, deeply embedded in the Irish psyche and in Irish culture. 
So for that reason, we also felt it was an opportune moment to try to understand what had happened in Gulf Ireland, which is a very recent case. It is a single sex integration process, but probably the exception to the norm in Gulf Ireland compared to what we've seen internationally at the end of that process, it was very clear to all involved that if they were serious about equality, they would establish a new entity, which is what they did. So essentially, at the end of uh, a process that has a number of stages to it, which we outline in, in the project, what it might look like, the Golfing Union of Ireland, the men's GUI was formally dissolved. The ILGU was formally dissolved to be able to create the new Golf Ireland that has a number of underpinning principles firmly embedded to equality. It's interesting as well, like you look at the, the GA Congress in February mentioned and, and like an overwhelming passing of the motion to prioritise this merging or integration, um, but there were 10% of delegates that voted against that uh, motion, Katie. So is, that, is the hope that a policy report like this can maybe convince some of those 10% at least that this is a good idea? Well, not, not just those 10%, and, and indeed I was very drawn to that 10%, I must say, and it would be great to speak to those if, if they're able to do that, and, and we'll, be, we'll be looking at opportunities through Connor's research to be able to have an open door to as many people as possible who want to speak to us about their views, but not just that 10%. We found that in the almost unanimous votes at, at the three Congresses that everybody voted for integration, but nobody had a clear conception of what it would look like. So there's a range of views on what equality means. And for that reason, there are maybe those who wouldn't agree with equality per se. There are others at the other end of the continuum who are arguably very clear in favour of equality. But yet we have to put in place what we think are a set of agreed principles and values that can now hopefully on a consensual basis guide the negotiations and the outcome of, of what it would what it would look like. So, I mean, there was there was probably two main observations that we drew out when we looked at Gulf Ireland and when we looked at the case studies around the world. And interestingly, there was there was an interesting case study in Gulf New Zealand, Cricket Australia, UK Sport and English and Welsh Cricket. By and large, all of the mergers and the term merger was used in, in other scenarios. Most of the mergers between men's and women's NGBs have occurred in the last 30 years or so in a neoliberal context. So some of that's been driven by financial imperatives, rationalization, minimal duplication of services. We see it in the public sector as well and, and in the private sector. So typically then in that kind of a scenario, women have tended to be the weaker party when you've had the conjoining of NGBs. For instance, in, in Australian women's cricket, it was even described by some of the researchers there as almost being cap in hand because they lacked assets, revenue, power and influence. So that was the first observation. And the second one was that in that context, integration, which is the term that's in the motion of the three associations here, in, in other contexts, that process led to the absorption of the women's NGB, typically by their men's counterpart, sometimes forced from the top down into the, the pre-existing organizational template, if you will, of the larger typically men's organization. So in that regard, when that happened, there were also missed opportunities for structural reform, genuine structural reform, aside from the creation of what was usually another operational axis for women's, you know, add women and stir to the existing template. Now, in Gaelic games, we know that structural reform will be needed to deliver equality. And there are also opportunities to, to address concerns around over-governance, 
especially at county board level, which has been described by some to us as almost governance heavy. And, and something similar had happened in Gulf Ireland. So in our interviews, Connor and I were involved with, with stakeholders who've led that process in Gulf Ireland. And they said something similar to us. For instance, the old GUI was even described as four tails wagging one dog because of the power of the provincial boards, if you were. So the risk, I think, is that in the absence of very real structural reform, guided by equality and underpinned by transformative leadership, the long-held values could exert an undue influence over integration. Okay. And those who worked very hard to progress women's Gaelic games could be on the periphery in anything that might resemble absorption or consolidation. So for that reason, our fifth recommendation is that we consider the establishment of a new Gaelic Games organization underpinned by principles and values, the leading one being equality. Okay, um, and on the face of it, that might be too radical for some people, but it might not be. It might be, you know, we, we have entered a kind of weird period where some some stuff is getting done much more quickly now, particularly uh, post-COVID, where the organisation realises it needs to change. And there's also pressure from government to hit quotas in terms of board members, which obviously you could do pretty easily if you integrated uh, properly or if you set up a new organisation. So there's a, a little window where... Um, there is power and influence on the basis that government funding won't be forthcoming if the GA doesn't change. And we have had relatively strong sports minister pronouncements on that just recently. Connor, is it your sense that work similar to what you're doing at the moment is ongoing within the GA? Mary McAleese obviously presented to annual Congress, um, the last Congress, uh, this year's one at 2023. Do you think that there's whatever work is being done is actually thinking in, in the same or similar terms to what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, so for anyone who isn't aware, we do have a steering committee at the minute consisting of three presidents, the three CEOs um, and Mary McAleese is chair of that group and I suppose I have approached the steering committee um, you know Offering, offering our services and, and advice, as, as Katie alluded to, we are coming from an, an evidence-informed, theoretically underpinned point of view, and we feel that the research can be of benefit um, to the committee. And you know, we're, we're very happy to support the committee in any capacity we can. I've had some really productive conversations with the likes of Hilda Breslin in the Camogie Association and Larry McCarthy in in the GAA and you know, were really keen to get this research, get the the research paper and the policy brief across to to present former President Mary McLeese and and be of service. And as Katie has alluded to before as well, it's it's so complex this merger or integration compared to some of the, the research we've looked at before because you have three associations across you know two jurisdictions on one island you have that strong history and tradition and the fact that it will be an integration of unequals in a lot of senses when you look at the representation and the the annual revenues but what we're looking at is you know potentially if you were to rip the script up for Gaelic games and start a new association organization today in 2023 what would that look like? 
And how would that be was instead of, you know, three associations formed in, you know, the early 1800s and, and 1884 and 1904 and 1974, you know, if we were to start a new association today, what would that look like? And, and what would be best looking forward for, for males and females together for, for young boys, young girls growing up in our game? Um, how would that association look? That sounds like a, a really good idea. Um, Katie, before we wrap this up, what do you think is a realistic time frame for this? Because it's obviously been spoken about now for a long period of time. If, if we're to do this properly, what's realistic? Well, it's a, that's a great question, Jar. I mean, the, the, the policy brief is available from today, open access. Everybody go and look at it. I would say go and look at page eight because everybody would be interested in the timeline where we've captured how many times the idea has been visited in the Gaelic Games context. And it's been dating back to the 1970s is the short answer to that. Now, I agree with you, Jar, that in some ways that there are parallel structures and, and similar operations within the three associations. So a lot of progress could be made in some areas whereas there will be a little bit more work to be done in others. But based on what we've seen both in Gulf Ireland, which is a national local example, as well as internationally, we think that to do this well and to plan for a full integration process, it could take up to five years or more. And that would be to do it well. And what would that mean? Well, essentially, it would mean that the systems of work and the organizational structures of, of a new entity would support male and female members equally across all units. So we're thinking players, administrators, coaches, officials. A funding model would prioritise investment for a time-bound period in the Gaelic games played by girls and women. Clubs and counties would have dedicated financial support to realise integration. And that might be through new funding streams or additional funding streams. And there will be a, a quota approach, a target approach in place to ensure that women are fully integrated into the decision-making governance structures of Gaelic games. Now, all of that could be monitored and evaluated. And we think that within five years' time, the blueprint would be there where a strategic plan could then deliver on equality, probably a very realistic target then in a, in a decade where we would genuinely have an organization that is both equal in terms of its principles, but in practice, delivering that on the ground. Okay. Okay. It sounds like it's a great, well, it, sorry, it's a great piece of work. It all sounds in uh, theory like it's very realisable and then obviously it meets the real world of GA politics and um, and that's when all the excitement starts and we <laughs> and we get to see what comes next but uh, we wish you the, both the, the very best of luck with it um, and so Connor, it, it's obviously ongoing from your perspective um, again uh, I, I understand that the worst thing you can ask any PhD student is uh, when are you going to finish it but when when are you going to finish it Connor? <laughs> <laughs> no we're not too keen on time frames here and even just to follow on, just to finish off on Katie's point, it's hard to put a time frame on something like this. From a structural point of view, we could have an integration or a merger, but the problem is if we want one that's underpinned by equality, which is, you know, what we've, um, the language that's been used by the steering committee, it could take longer than five years for us to have genuine equality um, because we're trying to change attitudes, behaviours and perceptions of people, which isn't necessarily something we can put a, a time frame on. Um, so just to finish off on that, my PhD, since going full time in February, I'll have another couple of years um, of that. And we'll have another couple of studies, which will be focused around this area as well, probably looking at a, 
a more wider sense of how gender, some of the gender inequalities in sport and leadership worldwide. And then we also want to conduct a national survey at some point um, to try and get a better understanding of what's happening on the ground within Gaelic Games, some of the fears, concerns, perceptions that people have about an integration and what that actually might look like. So um don't know if it's going to be a straight line, but we'll we'll see where it takes us. Yeah, and sorry, Katie, one last thing. It's really important that there's male allyship here, that this isn't just the female organisations shouting for equality, that there are strong male voices within the GEA who come forward and say, this is the right thing to do because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, one of our recommendations is that we have transformative leadership throughout this process. I think Connor and Aoife and I are doing, doing a decent job. And I'm sorry Aoife couldn't be with us this morning. She's actually traveling at the moment. But I mean, we're covering the three provinces. We are deeply embedded in the history and heritage of Gaelic games ourselves. But much more than that, we're trying to bring our expertise to bear in a very practical and constructive way. And you're right, if, if there is transformative leadership, I think with the right people involved in this process, there can be a very, very positive outcome. All right, Dr. Katie Listen and Conor Myler, we'll leave it there for now. Best of luck with it. Uh, it is a great piece of work. We'll tweet out links to it as well, but everybody should go and dig into it. Um, very, very accessible. Uh, so my thanks to Katie Listen and Conor Myler for explaining all that to us this morning. It's 8.53. Some more quick headlines for you on the back pages. Uh, golf sells out. Live pumps in billions as rival tours merge. The Golf Civil War was declared over yesterday after an extraordinary peace deal was struck between the traditional tours and the Saudi-backed Live circuit. We're going to talk with uh, Riyadh Al-Samari, who has written that story, or is one of the co-authors of that story, in a few minutes' time. And then a picture, again, of Teddy McCarthy in action, 1965 to 2023. Um, That's the back there. The back page of The Guardian. Saudis take control. Three golf tours merge and shock end to stalemates. Picture of Big Phil. Ah, he's loving it, isn't he? Ah, it's, uh, yeah, he's... What a day for him. Dressed in black. London Irish kicked out of the Premiership after the deal fails. Um, Saudi rebels buy into golf world order and it's Big Phil with the thumbs up. I I don't know if that's... um, if that was like he's just always available with a thumbs up these days, uh, and then life bands with the sneaker pair is that one, and then do we do Greenpeace already? Shock of Saudis swoop to end golf's civil war. It's uh, green because mm. the greens are green, but it's also green because of all the money. Shane, oh, I see. That's it. I see uh, what they did there. Works as a proper double entendre. Dollar bills. Um, just to say on that on that uh, G merger integration as well. Like Jonathan Burns is someone who'd be sitting watching this, you'd imagine, and and reading this policy very closely. And if you think back to like Sean McCaig and how his uh, presidency is remembered for something like Rule 21, like Jonathan Burns takes over next year for a three-year term, and it, this could be huge. Like it, it's one of the biggest moves that there, there, there has ever been in Gaelic games and in the camogie and in the ladies' football. Um, so I'd love to see it happen relatively quickly, but obviously in the right way as well. Yeah, the, the GAA is a is a complex organisation. You think they've got the joint venture with RTE? Are they going to give up? Mm. a share of that and control of that to this new organisation might be an opportunity for them to revisit that because not, as I keep pointing out they don't need RTE for GA go and it's really weird that that conflict of interest is still at the heart of the organisation deciding which which games are behind a paywall and which games aren't Well it turns out finances are the centre of um, the controversy in terms of mergers or integrations now certainly share, shared use of pitches and gyms have been one, another issue in yeah. the GA as well 
And I'd love to hear from people, and maybe that was a, a Connor was talking about doing a survey, what people's fears are. Um, do Does everybody get equal access to pitches at the moment? Um, and, and some clubs are already merged, is the other part mm. of this. So yeah. it's actually going to be not that big a deal, but maybe just a more formal, I'm sorry, but everybody needs equality here. Yeah. And um, that might be a bit for some of the dinosaurs. If you ever there. feel like you're... Um you're not doing enough with your life yeah just look at Conor Myler winning all Ireland's playing county football and doing a PhD and, and Dr Katie listening did exactly the same thing <laughs> it's, just, it's ridiculous has more medals than uh, Conor how do they have time like right so as I said there the back page story on all the papers today golf sells out live pumps in billions as rival tours merge I'm delighted to say Riath Al Samari is with us this morning Riath good morning to you how are you morning chaps yeah very well thanks um, a slightly um, slightly fraught evening um, for what you're just mentioning there. But uh, yeah, no, all is well. What type of details are we getting at the moment about how the deal was done and, and actually what, what the future holds? Okay, so dealing with the kind of first part of that, so we spoke to Jay Monaghan last night. He's the um, he's the commissioner of the PGA Tour and sort of fairly central figure in all of this which i'm sure we can discuss a little bit a, a little bit later he might have just taken the mantle from greg norman as the sort of most mocked man in golf on account of what's happened in the last 24 hours now in essence he says it's been a seven-week process um we know that sort of peace brokers have been have been have been drafted into this one of them was amanda staveley who's been brought in on the pif side of course she's the newcastle united director so she's um she's very well embedded in that sort of saudi system of doing things now there, there have been these sort of back channel conversations going on parallel of course to furious litigation that's been flying back and forth between the pga tour and live and also involving sort of the DP world tour, so what was once the European tour, they've, 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 they've also been involved in arbitration with live players. So we've had this frenzied landscape, fear and loathing in golf, sports never known anything like it. Now they sort of brought in these peace brokers about seven, seven weeks ago and talks have started. They've really escalated in the last month, all of which has culminated in this in this bombshell announcement yesterday afternoon that the PGA Tour, DP World Tour and Live are now are now merging. Now obviously what 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 people will have will have seen and heard in the last twenty four hours is these are gonna they're gonna remain three separate entities as far as kind of competition goes, but they are all under one commercial umbrella. And I suppose the real upshot of it is that will be largely under the control of live. They're the ones who can be putting money in, the Saudis rather. And the, I, I would say the sensible interpretation from all of this is that Saudi Arabia have just bought out golf. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been a pretty, a pretty dramatic, uh, dramatic day or so. Sorry, the line kind of broke up there, but essentially the tours will be under the control of Saudi Arabia. In a sense, yes. So they're going to be under this centralised commercial hub. The chairman of that is going to be Yasser Al-Rahman, who's the governor of the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund and indeed 
sort of Newcastle United, I suppose. So yeah, the South, the South, the, 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 there are some who would argue that this has been the plan all along. The entire purpose of creating Live was has been described to me in a sense as a Trojan horse. It was their way. It was Saudi's way of getting themselves into the landscape and being able to spread their wings once they got inside. So I suppose the other way it's been put to me is they came in through the back door and now they've got the keys to the front door as well. They've, you know, they had this marginalised product now in this commercial time of the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour. They're, 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 they're right there front and centre in golf. Riyadh, the, um, the position of Jim Monaghan as that PGA Tour commissioner now, is that is that being heavily called into question? Like hypocrisy is a word that's been thrown around in the last twelve hours or so or more. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. There was a very there, there, so currently this week will be the um, the Canadian Open. Rory McIlroy is there defending his title. So there was a players meeting last night. Monaghan told us that was heated and intense. A couple of players who we've spoken to have told us it was a few notches on from that again. We don't yet fully know McIlroy's position in all of this he's going to be speaking today so that's going to be interesting given he turned down an offer in the region of 400 million pounds to to go to live and might well now be asking himself well okay i made that decision and i spent i spent the better part of a year furiously defending pga tour only for them to subsequently get in bed with the saudi arabians what's going on here guys so we can understand that position, all of which puts Jay Monaghan in a very awkward position. He's brokered this deal. He's well, he certainly signed off on it. He's the commissioner of the PGA Tour. And this is a man who has been very outspoken about Liv. Um, he also took the step of bringing up the situation around 9-11 um, what does this mean if given given Saudi involvement in 9-11 how can how can how can golfers in good conscience etc go and sign up with the Saudi Arabian golf tour now these are these are these are incredibly powerful comments to make and of course he's now gone and signed up with with with, with 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 the Saudi Arabians and so he's left himself open to this accusation of hypocrisy. So you've got that you've got that aspect on top of which you now have this question around his position. How can the players trust him? They were all kept in the dark on this. Almost you you saw people like Colin Morikawa, a two time major winner, coming out on Twitter yesterday and saying he's finding out this news on social media, which is which is a remarkable situation. So, and on top of that, of course, he then told us last night that Rory himself, and of course the biggest name in the whole of the sport, Tiger Woods, only found out that this agreement was reached uh, yesterday. So there are going to be some awkward questions for Jay Monaghan in the background on, on, on all of this. And certainly all of the early feedback we we're hearing is that the players are extremely unhappy about it. It'll be very interesting to see what they can do. Um, in the in the intermediate term, do all the events just go back to being 
four days and golf goes back to being golf and and live as a, a format disappears or do you expect in next year and the year after for there to be like a live swing where it's um you know the three days no cuts for the top players like do we have any idea what this actually means on a practical level so at the moment, the short answer to that is no, it's all to be confirmed. There was very much a feeling yesterday when they put the statement out that they were announcing peace in our time, but with very, very little meat on the bones. There was very little sort of indication of what this is going to look like going forward, subsequently discovered. The tours will, it won't, it won't be one great big global tour. It, the, the you know the unification as it were comes under this sort of you know the pooling of commercial resources so they're you know that's that's that 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 that's the kind of point in it what happens next with live is going to be fascinating kind of going back to what i was saying earlier about the sort of theory that they were created as a trojan horse that lends itself to the idea that it won't it won't exist in its current format the long sort of Jay Monaghan also indicated in that direction to us yesterday that it won't, you know, what, what, what the, what the future looks like isn't going to be what the present is. If you follow me that, you know, they want to keep the team aspect. I, I quite how that manifests and really? <laughs> um, at what time in the year that, that, that falls. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but okay. it could be, we could see a scenario where you have the PGA Tour, DP Tour, World Tour running as usual, and then you have sort of separate events whereby they, whereby they run these run these team tournaments. They were very keen on the franchise model. There are people within the organisation who are who fully believe that team golf has a future on the regular calendar outside of the Ryder Cup um, having been to a couple of those events I'm personally not convinced by that but um, you know it, it, it's like like a lot of things with this it remain it remains to be seen certainly what we're going to see is these players moving a lot more freely between tours from the end of this year so you know someone on live will be a will be eligible to come back over to the PGA tour the DP World Tour players who resign their membership, they can reapply for membership. I think they'll still have to serve their suspensions that they were given in April and the and, and the quite severe fines they were given. They'd have to clear all of that before they could come back in. But the the door will be open for them when that time comes. Riyadh, this ends any um, uh, what had been ongoing litigation between the the two tours as well. Are we led to believe that that's a happy coincidence about this whole deal, or was that uh, a significant? part of the discussions look I there are there are certainly people I spoke to yesterday who said look if this was an end game possibility all along the litigation could be seen as a useful bargaining tool I don't know that I don't know if that was uh, that was written into it from a from, 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 from the beginning this is sort of 4D chess kind of levels of Machiavellian intrigue at the moment but it's look, look, looking at it yes in essence it does end immediately they've said that in the statements this, the litigation all goes away and you know we, we are talking about a number of cases we're talking you know the sort of the, the, the antitrust cases all of this 
very, very complicated business, but the PGAs were trying to trying to sort of compel testimony from sort of key figures within the PIF, which you know, which had the potential to shine a yeah. huge light on this thing. It was all, 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 all of that, all of that factors into the agreement that we saw yesterday. All right, we've got to leave it there. Riyad Al-Samari, thanks very much for joining us this morning. Pleasure. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. Good morning, Vinny. How are you? Good morning. All good. We were just chatting there. We're, this is the last round of fixtures before the mid-season break. Yeah, mid-season break kicks in now. So um, Dublin Airport, if you want to meet a League of Ireland player, get a jersey signed, head to Dublin Airport Saturday morning and one, you'll spot them one of them's flying into the villa in Love Island as well you haven't heard any rumours no so? that seems to be I don't know I, I heard that um, I heard that rumour as well somewhere yesterday so what would yeah. you say if one of your players came round here and said here I'm I'm away off here to the villa Love Island villa for a couple of weeks a few weeks I can only presume that that's how you narrow it down it has to be a part time club I can't see how it just doesn't make any sense unless they've decided it's good for the brand and they're going to sell a lot of jerseys yeah that sounds something like American you owner might come up with but you, you don't have American owner anymore jer- jersey and yeah. sell a million yeah that, it does sound great but no um, any advertisement is good but uh, in terms of if he's a serious footballer I'd be surprised but <laughs> we'll see okay we will see uh, there's a couple of things I suppose we should talk about here uh, Rovers have opened up a gap and they get UCD in their last game UCD bottom of the table before the mid-season break so it looks like they're going to take well they definitely take some gap into the mid-season break because they're four points clear and there's only one game left but um, it's going to be a long a long week and ten days for people to stew over the fact that yeah, they've got to I think, I think what's interesting about me coming on here is um the feedback you get, you know, uh, it's great. And uh, are you being ironic there? Yeah, no, I mean in a good way. At least we're talking, and I don't, I don't get everything right. But I probably questioned last week, Shamrock Rovers being clinical enough in games, and 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 I stand over the argument in the sense of, and some of the, the counter arguments, and we score more goals than anyone else, so that's nonsense. But they have the best squad, they've the most possession in games, and. When I made that comment, they played halfway through the season. They played eighteen games and only won nine. So, mm. by and large, that shouldn't be good enough to win your league, but it most likely will. But what they were the weekend was clinical. I was at the Dundalk game and I watched their their game against Sligo, and they were particularly against Dundalk. They weren't exceptional with any stretch of imagination, but they were very clinical in how they took their goals and put Dundalk to bed. And against Sligo on a, on a Monday night to go up there and win three 0 exceptional result, and everything sort of fell into sort of into their way over the weekend, and they've had a great weekend. And um, I've I, I've said here that I still fancy them by ten points, and if you're making a handicap, you'd say Rovers minus ten, and you may have sort of weakened that a little bit to maybe minus seven but still say ten points and I think they're that far ahead of everybody and while I hope we get a title race it seems inevitable that this is a big shift in the momentum and can't stress enough going into the window when you go into that window with a lead it's great because it gives you a chance to recess uh, where you're at and, and build from there Momentum is the, is the thing I know Gerald loved this argument yeah, yeah. but the, is the break coming at a bad time? For Rovers, is, is like would they prefer to just keep rolling along this the, the, the tracks the way they're going at the moment? No, I think I think the break is good. It's good for you to. Is, is, what's key about the break is um, 
I remember once, so you, you, you basically get one weekend off, but what was crucial, I, I remember once at Dundalk where we allowed our players off till a Wednesday of next week. Um, we went on a training camp Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we flew home Sunday, late Sunday night from a training camp in Spain. So, uh, And I met a League of Ireland manager on the same flight coming out of Spain, stroke Portugal. And uh, about three months later, he says, she can't compete with Dundalk. They have all the resources at the time. But even if we hadn't had the money to go to Spain, we'd have been back on the Wednesday training hard, Thursday, Friday. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity to reassess. It shouldn't be used as a holiday. So Mini pre-season? Well, no, not necessarily. Like them, them days are gone now because no matter what sport you talk about on here, you'll hear people... Players, fitness levels, you don't put on a stone in the off-season anymore or half a stone. Them days are gone. Uh, so it, it's about maintaining people's fitness. And it's why I struggle when I hear the lads talking about, say, gee, yeah, you can't peak every week. I'm like, all right, yeah, don't show your hand every week you hear. Now, didn't, or, uh, Derry didn't show the hand in the final. Like, all right, against Dublin. Why not? Like, you know, imagine Man City. Oh, we can't play well every week. We have to wait for a Champions League final. But I can't. I can't fathom that, but there you go. But um, most most modern day athletes now don't need a mini preseason, and it's an opportunity to be to get into some tactical stuff for managers, particularly the ones that are heading into European football. Uh, they have to spend a little bit longer on the training grounds um, and, and they, work on things. Did the uh, trip away help that team significantly? Do you think? Oh yeah, they were huge. I mean, uh, particularly. Uh, the injury prevention side of things and, and recoveries and people coming back from injuries and so you remember um, they're, they're an expensive way of doing things but you'd have your physio with you for 24-7 so you might have a morning session with physiotherapist and an evening session um, if you were near I know where we went we are near the sea so the physio would take the lads down as a tour session and do a sea session and in the so all of them things and it's just it's just the professionalism and no matter what players would tell you they love it they love everything done for them all their meals covered in terms of times different things and, and players will love it and, and uh, no matter what you say it gives your sort of ego might be the wrong word but gives you a boost as, a, oh, as yeah. an athlete to be able to go and, and, and act the best and be the best yeah it's your uh, it finally justifies all those hours that you did you feel like you're yeah you're getting a bit of reward and you've got to remember it's like I, I made this argument to someone who was providing us with GPS stats but when I first took over Dundalk I went to meet them and said I'm competing against in Champions League against Celtic against so I can't fall down on little things I need you to help me here so Shamrock Rovers players are competing in Champions League football so I don't know whether they do a mini tour this year but any little extra you can give players or any little advantage you can take you have to take it that's the level you're competing at uh, there's a few things we need to talk about. Uh, Cork's upswing in form since they've changed manager. Pat's upswing in form. But Derry's form over the last three games, beaten at Sligo uh, 1-0, drew nil all with Shells at home, and then hammered by Pat's 4-1. Like, uh, that is not title race form. No, and, and I, I, was on, uh, I was on Virgin on Monday night when we'd done the Derry and Pat's game. And it was my first, I think it was one of my first times live. And I was conscious of saying a, a sentence I've used here in case I made a mistake with it. But 
teams are consistently inconsistent in the league right and it's a bit of a mouthful uh, when you're live on TV in case you get it wrong uh, the world we live in but Derry that sums up Derry it sums up so many of the teams that you can go and, and look like title contenders and it's sort of gone badly for them the result against Pats is one thing you can handle losing you'll always have you'll always have a bad even even winning the, the league Rovers will have a bad night somewhere along the lines you go back to years ago remember uh, you'd remember this Newcastle beat United 5-0 mm. still went on to win the league yeah. there's always them and as a manager I've heard Pep speak about it and uh, staying calm that's how you win leagues right but with the result is one thing but actually the performance from Derry the other night was so poor and the loss again of McElhenney and Duffy out of the team and they look short of title contenders I have to say um, and the last week has been really inconsistent for them and you just can't win a league that way and uh, it was a really poor night for them um, Pats have lost seven games this season and are now level on points with Derry so that tells its own story for me Did Derry just need to go through this for a while like, and um, let their manager experience what this is like what that pressure was like and, and how that whole because if you, you know uh, it, there was a period where Rovers fans wanted rid of yeah. the current Rovers manager who was about to take his team to four in a row like football is really fickle but the teams who stick it out who work with their manager and their coaching team to develop them and go okay you're not at the level you need to be at at the moment and we need to be honest about that yeah. you need to do better but we're going to back you over the next while is that what they need to do? Yeah I think I think two things one is first of all Rory Higgins knows how to win league titles he's been involved in staff um, he's helping himself won a league title he's, he's also been part of Stephen Kenny's staff and won a league title as a, as a player so he knows how it's done um, it, what Derry have to do what what they have to do to catch Rovers and they seem to have the finance and time is it's going to take time Rovers have stolen the march and he is 300% the right man for that job I feel um, and that's not personal to Rory obviously he, he, we, we, we had a great time together um, when, when you know Higgins and his love for football and love for Derry and he's from the area all of them things he has rebuilt the squad now that are disappointed only to be second where for so long they were mid-table team. It will take them time. You're right to use the Stephen Bradley reference. There's, there's plenty of them uh, throughout the years. So it's just it's just got to build a squad capable. Like they finished the, the, the game the other day with um, three young boys in midfield who will all be good players in their own right. And when the time comes, like uh, someone like Jordan McAniff scored six goals for them, but he's not ready to to go and be part of a midfield that can win a league unless they're firing with everybody and and they're just not there yet. So their time will come. They're well on the road. Um, To be fair to Rory, I don't think he's overhyped winning the league. It's it's being people from the outside because we're looking for a title race. We are. And we're building them up before they're ready probably to win it. And the investment is so spectacular or at least you know there's been talk of the investment being potentially yeah and, and I think they've they've done it uh, I uh, geez, Philip, Philip Doherty would not like me saying this because I don't think the two of them in any way shape or form equated but they've done it the Newcastle way as in it's been sensible what they've done them there they haven't just thrown money around uh, and, and Philip Doherty doesn't have the money of the Saudis or the character let me be very clear on that yeah mm-hmm. fair enough um What's going on at Pats? How have they suddenly become uh, all singing, all dancing? 
Um, again, I think uh, you must mention Tim Clancy's. Put that's his squad. I always, I always feel sorry for the manager in that situation. His that's his squad, and there's been some subtle changes, not that many. Um, John Daly's gone in, and, and there's just been a bit of freedom about them. I think Jamie Lennon has been a huge part of that in midfield for them. Again, uh, I touched on it more about Rovers, but we've got to we've got to be careful now in the league where we're, we're, we're sort of um, a lot of passing and pa- for pass sake. And Jamie Lennon is, although he, he's a he can certainly pass the ball to a high level. Uh, his biggest strength is is getting after the ball, and that's sort of number six. And he's been huge for them. Obviously, Chris Forrester is top joint top scorer for them, and they've sort of hit form in that centre midfield for them recently. They, what's been strange about their run at the moment? They've been decimated with injuries, uh, particularly across the back. Like Joe Redman, their captain, is out long term, and they've lost three or four centre halves at different stages so what they've managed to do is remarkable and it just shows you um, it shows you momentum in mm. football as you or whatever the right word is but it's but but all of these teams outside the Rovers wouldn't shock me if they lost three games in a row coming up as well so um, it's it's brilliant for them I hope they think they're in a title race are they good enough to win the league? Possibly not, but I hope they, they have that mindset in the dressing room. At least tactically, John Daly has shifted a few things and brought a few new initiatives. Like you have a team open for the, even Ben McCormick starting at left, but he tucks tucks in yeah. quite often in the match as well. So like, there's little things that John Daly is doing that you're like, well, that's that's something that's different. I will say John Daly tactically has been very impressive um, it, throughout his, his reign. His substitutions at the right time, uh, the way he's matched up, you're right, Ben Doherty, or Ben McCormick has done really well. He's sort of he's a midfielder playing off the left, and he comes in narrow and gives them that sort of balance in there. And even the other night, that allowed Conor Carty, who's a centre forward, effectively play higher on the right wing. So tactically, he's made some uh, uh, good things, and and it's just a good feel good factor around St Pat's. I mean, the crowd the other night exceptional again, uh, great crowds, and 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 things are rolling on nicely for them and. Uh, John Daly deserves huge credit for that, I ha- have to say. But um, as I said, some key players are, are really standing up for them. And things just go away, um, and, and they seem to be at that club. Uh, young Morphy in midfield for them, again, rising player. He's going to be a top, top player for them. So Sam Curtis, a right back, huge interest from from English football. I've heard Manchester United now being linked to him. Is, and that's gone back to your point a couple of weeks ago. He would have been in the UK now, if he only for the Brexit rules doesn't allow him. So he's now getting men's football week in week out, and he, hit, he at seventeen he's playing first team football. At sixteen he was playing, but he hit it. I felt he hit a ceiling or a window where I was like, oh, he's probably been, he's probably reached his limit here. He went through a bad spell, but for the last sort of seven, eight, nine weeks he's come through that spell and he looks hell of a player and he's on the radar of a lot of premiership clubs yeah and it's going to be very interesting to see if, if anybody can make that leap from a really talented youngster to the Premier League relatively quickly it massively inflates the transfer value because the Premier League is a is clearly copycat and if, if one or two players make it then all of a sudden transfer fees climb to a point which is transformed well I don't think you're getting Sam Curtis out of St Pat's now for less than a quarter of a million minimum, minimum and it will continue to grow 
as long as his performance continues to grow and he continues to play that yeah. figure. So, you know, the days of 40 and 50,000, hopefully, there still will be some of them, but he's starting to drift away with a bit of luck. Um, the FAI plans and the their request for investments was published during the week. Yeah. Um, any well, it wasn't published. To be fair to them, right? So, and journalists have to do what journalists <coughs> do, but it, it was leaked. And what I what I didn't like about the leak was that, and, and journalists are entitled to they stand over them whether they leak stuff from why. But I hope because it's leaked, and then when they do announce, it hasn't lost some of the weight of their argument. If that makes sense, because it's already out there. You only get one chance to make a first impression. Yeah, so that's the, that's the only thing. And to make another small point on the FBI, like. Sometimes even, and I do, we come in here and say, the FBI have got to do this, or people say they've got to do that. There is a lot of work going on in the background, and they are building strategic plans. Um, I think that announcement is due this Thursday. Right. So, or that was their plan, and it's leaked before that. I just hope it's 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 listened to, and it's given a, a fair hearing as a result of... Now, FBI making statements will always make the news. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I think so. I think um, in politics, sometimes the kite gets flown and then the actual ask and you see what it, uh, what the response is like. And maybe this was our purpose. To, it was a strategic move to, OK, let's get that story out and uh, let's see what the response is like. If there's a massive outcry to the FAI asking for money from the public, then maybe we'll push that back a month or two. But there hasn't been a massive outcry. No. And, and again, I, I've only seen bits of it um, the, the the journalist who released it is behind the paywall I, I, I go behind enough paywalls I'm not behind that one so I've only seen bits of it but it seems to be all of the right soundings it seems to be huge amount of money they're looking for fine but for example 140 million plus for academies you know that that is needed uh, League of Ireland teams getting to closer to 20,000 seater stadiums not sure whether that's but hey it, um, what I do hope is they've had an independent company prepare this order for them and I do hope though that the standards are highly stick to them it seems to be like a, a f- 15 year plan but broken into 3-5 year cycles yeah. and I hope they go after it and, and, and actually put people under a little bit of pressure um, because you know it's I know FEI bashing is the easiest thing to do but I think they've turned a bit of a corner and um, I would say it feels that way to yeah. be honest that there's a credibility when they go to Leinster House and start lobbying for this that um, you know their recent track record is negotiating their way out of trouble they haven't been able to do all of the things that they want to do because the senior team hasn't qualified for a tournament and they don't have a sponsor at the moment that would help but like you can't also assume that we're going to qualify for tournaments because you know traditionally we don't Um once every six or eight years we might make a Euros mm. uh, but that's that's not guaranteed either so um, it feels like they've got most of the building blocks in place to run the organisation properly having come through yeah. the storm the, you must give credit to the to the CEO oh, Jonathan Hill I mean is he is he out in front of media is he you know falling out of nightclubs no but hey we probably had a little bit of that now it's time to have someone a little bit quieter but certainly doing a lot of work and pushing a lot of people to to set new standards and, and new goals within the FU and I think I think people close to the game will tell you there's a lot of stuff stuff sort of not that it's happening but a lot of work on in that and we should see the fruits of it soon do you feel that? yeah a, no I genuinely do I think um, 
there's a lot of stuff at the change and we'll always have problems in politics and sport is always a huge thing and it, that's never going to go away but you certainly feel like um, they you know they're they're going in the right direction and it's certainly um, if, if you're entitled to a euro you'll get the euro if you're not entitled to it um, it's very hard to go in and say I'm sure if we sell 20 tickets can we have that euro so yeah. it seems a little bit more straight and um, there's rules in place it seems Ended. that way yeah. yeah, it would be remiss of us not to mention the madness in uh, Turner's Cross for the, the finale that Cork Bowes game just insanity because Bowes equalised the f- flares are going off Bowes fans going mad and in the middle of all that Daniel Kresic comes up and <laughs> scores the, the winner for Cork still Cork aren't in, the, in terms of the standings where they want to be but that was a dramatic one and well yeah. earned as well no that was a huge moment in, uh, for them and, and for so many other teams as well because um, they haven't Liam Buckley has gone in to, as director of football and they haven't overly changed the squad or anything yet because the windows haven't opened but there just seems to be a bit of a feel good factor around the club at the moment and um, Bowles would be dit- bitterly disappointed Adam McDonald equalised 88 minutes and then boom 89 minutes and um, but that's huge and the ramifications for that are they were cut adrift a couple of weeks ago but I think they've won five of the last six games and what they've done is now they've put teams like Sligo under pressure mm. because um, when you finish second bottom in the league you go into a playoff and traditionally you're playing against a first division team that playing first division football part time etc the difference now is most likely at the moment it's Waterford who are mm. a full time football club and you've got away running away with the first division so if, if it happens to be Waterford Top it's match. a 50-50 game yeah. it was normally weighted 80% nearly for the Premier Division side so you've got a lot of big clubs watching over the shoulder now from obviously Drogheda but um, Sligo, Shelbourne all the way up as far as Dundalk I would say would have one eye over the shoulder saying got to stay away from, from that second from bottom position and into the, the relegation playoff against what looks like a really strong Waterford side the battle of, battle of the midfield, as they call it in Formula One, those teams that are that are looking over their shoulder but also ahead of them. Uh, Duffer will be pretty pleased with how things are going. Yeah, again, that was a brilliant result from Judah Knight because again, I know Duffer will 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 not admit it because you know he just won't. But they've got to have one eye on Cork as a club, like just continuously uh, building on where they are as a club and mid table for Shelbourne and slowly building towards the top is is the right plan, but. They were losing to draw the other night and they showed real strength and depth to come back and win the game. And there's a, there's a great feel, good factor around that club. Are they easy on the eye? No. Are they hard to watch at times? Yeah, I've been to Shelbourne a lot. Um, but um, he's getting every single inch out of that group of players. And listen, you have to say that about Duffer. Like he's, he's doing the hard yards and he is managing to get every single last bit of blood out of that stone and it, it, it's tremendous to watch Will that impact Duffer now I'm talking medium to long term here but if he ever wanted to get the senior international manager's job like the, the style of play come into it will that impact his or harm his chances if he's playing uh, per football to watch I, th- I think if you're a legend and like Duffer is I think you, you'll, you would get a pass on that I don't think what he's doing at Shelbourne will be enough to get him the international job I think he would have to go to the next level whether that was you know, with a League of Ireland club and have real success in European football. Mm. But what he's doing at Shelbourne is probably not good enough at the moment. But he know that himself. But I think he, 
being successful in Europe would give him a chance of it but he'd have to have that I would feel to, to be credible mm. alright we leave it there for this week Vinny good stuff thanks a million for that a reminder OTBAM live with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition is available now on Thursday's show that's tomorrow Andy Friend Andy McEntee London Irish's Hugh O'Sullivan right now Colin Boyle and Darren O'Sullivan from last night's show we'll see you tomorrow best of luck OTBAM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition Edition available now.